Well, how was your Thanksgiving? I know you've probably been asked that a lot. You will be asked still. You're going to return from the weekend and get back into whatever it is that Monday brings, and surely somebody's going to say, how was your Thanksgiving? Or maybe I should put the question this way. How is your Thanksgiving? The, the thing about um, Thanksgiving is that we think of it as a time that this is a time to pause and to give thanks for all of the good things, the blessings that we enjoy, um, the good things in life that God has given us, uh, allowed us to enjoy. And, and that is all perfect. Well, it's good. It's not perfect because it's not complete. It is leaving something out. It's missing something. In, in doing so, it's almost as if we shut our eyes to all the other stuff. We pretend that the things that aren't good, that aren't right, maybe aren't so right now. And we just remember, for a moment at least, those good things and focus on those good things that are also here. But the problem is that leaves many of us, in a sense, out of thanksgiving. Because perhaps the, the most significant thing going on right now is not a good thing. Maybe it's a trouble. Maybe it's a trial. Maybe it's sorrows. Maybe it's loss. We know the scripture says, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. And yet... It doesn't say to give thanks for everything, but in everything give thanks. How do we give thanks in the midst of this? Those sorrows or troubles that we might want to close our eyes to and forget and pretend that's not the case, at least for now on Thanksgiving. What if, what if we could actually give our deepest thanks our most sincere worship out of the sorrows and troubles. Or at least rather for the way that God shows his redemption, his working in the midst of those sorrows and troubles, bad things in life that are all around us. The psalm that is before us this morning, Psalm 107, and as you're turning your Bibles, opening them to Psalm 107, or um, if you're using the church Bible, you'll find us on about page 506. I'm going to ask them to bring the lights back up so that you can read your Bibles. And this psalm is before us this morning. It's actually, it's a thanksgiving hymn. It's an earlier psalm that is grab hold of later, and it's repurposed. It's sort of re-owned by a later generation. But it's, it's a thanksgiving hymn in four verses or four stanzas. And it's very clear, that structure, because of the repeating elements. It is introduced in confession of four different types of our fallen condition. Four different ways that our brokenness in humanity as sons of Adam, children fallen from Adam and Eve, our, our um, experience these aren't the only four, but these are representative four, and they're introduced with some, some. Some are here, some are here, some are over here, some might be over here. And I think you'll find ourselves in some of these in our own experience. Wandering, rebellion, foolish, self-will, self-confident ambitions. 
Each of these will end up having their own consequences, and those consequences are expressed. In the midst of those consequences, in the midst of the troubles, the sorrow, the brokenness that comes, there is this repeated line, and then they cried out to the Lord in the midst of their distress, and he answered them. Another line that is repeated four times, once in each verse towards the end. It's, it's a call for others to join in thanksgiving for God's redemption. It goes like this. Let them thank the Lord for his chesed, his covenant faithfulness, his steadfast love, God's enduring covenantal promised mercies for his Wondrous works or his miraculous acts to the children of men, or as I said before, to literally translate that, it would be the sons of Adam. So there is that reminder that we are children of Adam. There's that reminder of all that that includes, Adam from the fall and the brokenness of humanity since, that we are children of Adam living as broken people in a broken world. And yet, as broken people in a broken world, we yet experience God's, not merely Good things, but his miraculous acts. There's something in particular that the psalmist is putting his finger on out of fallenness, and God miraculously intervenes there. And in all of these some certain circumstances, they all point to something bigger than all of them, but inclusive of every. There's a declarative praise then of God's redemption out of our brokenness, God's intervening, and God setting what's wrong right. A call for others to join in that thanksgiving. The psalm concludes with a description of God's redemptive purpose, that, that from the fall, God works redemptively. He brings fruitfulness out of fallenness. He brings blessing out of brokenness. He brings vindication to the faithful that those who have troubled you, those who have opposed you, whether they be difficult people around you or whether they be principalities and spiritual powers behind the scenes because we don't war merely against flesh and blood, but God will vindicate your faith and your faithfulness to him against such oppression. That God's redemptive love is worthy of our worship and our thanksgiving. What if we didn't merely pause and shut out the sorrows and troubles for a moment and remember the good things and thank God for those things? What if our sorrows could sing? What if the troubles and the sorrows of the, our experiences that we commonly share in the midst of this broken life, what, are, what if these were the ground? What if that was the, was the songbook out of which we could sing, not concerning the sorrows? Oh, God. You know, like the one song, nobody knows the sorrows I've seen. Nobody knows the troubles. Well, you don't want to hear about it, really. But what if I could tell you of God's miraculous acting, God's working in the midst of those troubles, in the midst of those sorrows. That's something worth listening to. That's something worth singing about. And that's what this psalm does. It invites us to sing that our sorrows can sing. That God's redemptive love is worthy of our worship. And so we can give thanks out of even the troubles and the disappointments of life. Let's consider these four representative examples. And like I said, I think you'll find yourself in here. Look for yourself in these. The first one is found in verses, well, let me pause. Let me not do that yet. Let me read the opening verses just so we read um, those before we move into the psalm. It opens this way, and it opens somewhat peculiarly. First, verse 1 is likely original to the old song that is early in the, experience, in, in the days of the kings of David, probably. 
And yet, verses 2 and 3 were added later. Verses 2 and 3 were added to the psalm, probably by um, someone from the after-the-exile generation. We call that the post-exilic. Isn't that a technical Fancy, scholarly-sounding term, the post-exilic. These are the people that came back from Babylon. And they took this song and they said, this is our song. This is, though it was written centuries earlier, this is our experience too. And they are doing what you and I do. We take from Paul's words into the First Corinthians in chapter 10 that, that, that um, those things which are written before, even the Psalms, they're written for our instructions. We can learn from that. We'll take that for, as from God to us so that from the encouragement and the perseverance, the steadfastness of God exhibited in the Scriptures, we can have hope. Well, another generation coming back from Babylon, having experienced God's miraculous acts, how could a nation that's been completely destroyed rise again? As Ezekiel's vision demonstrated, these bones can live. And that nation was restored, and they made the psalm their own. You'll see that in verses 2 and 3. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love, his chesed, his covenantal faithfulness endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Let others hear it from us. Whom he has redeemed from trouble. What kind? Verse 3. And gathered from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. From all these directions that he scattered us to, God has brought us back. That post-exile generation says, this song is our song. This song is also our song. This is for you and I. We will step into it as well. Now, then look at verse 4. Some of us also have wandered in desert places, finding no way to a city to dwell in, no place to really feel home. Nope, I don't, do I really belong anywhere? Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them, not merely physical hunger and thirst then, their soul fainting within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress he led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, the sons of Adam, for he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. This first verse is the language of the Exodus. Calling out of Egypt, they have been redeemed by the blood of the Passover lamb and they have been set free from the bondage in Egypt and they have been set free, brought out of Egypt and across the Red Sea for the purpose of meeting with God, having a covenant with God confirmed there at Mount Sinai. God shows himself to his people. God gathers himself in a pattern of worship by his people and then they're to go from there into this land that God has prepared for them. God has a purpose and a destiny and yet they do not. They don't go. They did not believe that God would provide for them. They did not believe that God would open the way for them. That just as he brought them out, he would bring them in. They didn't believe it. And so they stayed and they wandered in that wilderness for 40 years. And this is their experience. Hunger and thirst. God provided manna for them every day. And yet they have not, they are not. God did not save us in Christ. If you have faith in Christ, God did not save you merely to deliver you from the condemnation of sin. God has given you new life in Christ that we might live out the life of Christ in our life today, tomorrow, 
the day after. Not merely saved from sin so that I would have a home in heaven someday when I die, but to live now in this life of Christ. To live in his purpose, his destiny. Easily we get distracted. God saw us wandering like sheep without a shepherd, homeless, hopeless. He brought us back. He took us in. He gave us a future. He gave us purpose. He gave us destiny. Life apart from Christ. Or life even for the Christian, apart from living in Christ. Just going along with life as it was is aimless wandering in the wilderness that cannot satisfy. St. Augustine talked about this God-shaped hole in the heart of every human. Every child of Adam. Since the expulsion from the garden, every one of us have known we are separated from the God who made us. And so then also the purpose for which we were made, which was to be in relationship with him and to be his regions over creation. To walk with God and for God. And we've been separated from that. And we try to fill that longing in all kinds of other ways. Wandering aimlessly. Maybe we'll find it here. Maybe we'll find it there. And we do not. It can only be found in Christ. You may be wandering, not satisfied. You know life is supposed to be more, but you wonder what that more is. It seems like it was supposed to be better than this, and you're right. It is. It is. This is the longing soul which only God can satisfy. We sang that, only you can satisfy. The hungry soul that he fills with good things. What did they do? In the midst of that hunger, in the midst of that longing, what did they do? They cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them until they reached a city. God brought them home. God gave them purpose. God directed their steps. They saw his miraculous acts of provision and protection. And just as God had promised, the enemies ran before them. It was just as he said. When they stepped into his promise, they saw the waters. When they put their feet into the Jordan River, that's when the waters parted. And they went across on dry land. And when they walked for seven days around Jericho... That's when they saw the walls fall, just as God said. That wasn't the city God had for them. That was a city that fell down flat. But other cities already built, vineyards already planted, God gave to them in that land when it was that they did trust him and walk in his ways. They called on God and he met them. You see, easily we, we, we know what God has said, and yet we go our own way. It's not merely wandering aimlessly, but even having heard from God, we decide, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to do what I want to do. Have you ever been there? Yes, you have. Don't say no. Yes, you have. Yes, I have. Yes, we have. That, that active rebellion against the will and the way of God. I know what God said, but this is really what I Look at verse 10. Some sat in darkness, in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and irons. How did that happen? How did they get there? They had rebelled against the words of God. This seems to describe the experience of the, of the judges period over and over again. They had spurned the counsel of the Most High God, so he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. But then, again, they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. 
He brought them out of darkness, out of the shadow of death. He burst their bonds apart. Oh, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works, his miraculous acts to the children of Adam. They call on God, and God intervenes. God answers. God is both just and merciful. His justice points to his mercy. When you know you've done wrong, you've sinned, you're guilty, you've, you've done others harm, you need mercy. You need forgiveness. God gives just what we need. He forgives sin. He releases its claim on you. He releases its power over you. He set them free. Out of the darkness and shadow of death, Paul says to Timothy, that God has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. I love the old Wesley hymn. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. It's being described here, that deliverance out of our own rebellion. And it's as simple as calling on God and confessing to him, my, my God, my Father, I have sinned against you. Forgive me. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we have. Lord, there are times when we have wandered foolishly, seeking our own way. Lord, there are times when we have actively rebelled against you. Lord, we ask for your forgiveness in Christ. Or Lord, we claim it again. We remind ourselves of it again. That for our sin, for our guilt, Jesus Christ, your son, came from heaven to live that he might die for us in our place. Bearing our sin in his own body there on the cross. That we might receive from you his rightness that we might be welcomed back home in his name. Father, we thank you for that. Lord, we marvel. We will sing. We will even tell of our brokenness if it points to your redemption and your wonderful, miraculous salvation in Jesus. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Out of that rebellion... God redeems his miraculous acts. And it's not merely out of our rebellion, but it's out of sometimes our just foolishness. Rebellion is one thing. Rebellion is knowing this is what God has said, and I'm going to do what I want to do. Foolishness is different. Foolishness is not bothering to consider. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Well, foolishness is not considering God. Foolishness is that godlessness that live, lives as if God was not or couldn't be bothered to find out what God's will is in the matter. Now, the problem is that we live in a, in a godless, by and large, age. We live in a foolish society that, by and large, large, does what they do, decides what they decide without reverence to what does God have to say and easily Easily that slips in, that, that influences the way that we react to day-to-day -day circumstances and decisions. Rather than taking that time to pray, Lord, what would you have me to do? That sometimes in the midst of crisis or trouble, it, it's easily seen, but, but foolish self-will brings its own trouble. Look at verse 17. Some were fools through their sinful ways not even considering God. And because of their iniquities, they suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food. They, they drew near to the gates of death. 
And they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. There it is again. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wonderful works to the children of men. And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. Going our own way has its consequences. Our own iniquities bring afflictions, as is is described here. Our pursuit of pleasure on our own terms can bring addictions. Substance abuse and STDs can trade away vitality for misery. Foolish purchases bring indebtedness. How am I ever going to pay off that card or that car? I thought that would make me happy. That would fulfill me. If only I had this. Foolish choices that we might make in the, in the uh, pursuit of our own desires. We make a foolish choice that, that can break trust, can destroy. Apart from God's redemption, can destroy relationship. Families explode or just slowly drift silently apart. The conventional wisdom is you've made your bed, now lie in it. But that's not God's wisdom because God's wisdom is redemptive. God's redemption says foolishness is given a new bed to lie on, a new standing, a new home. I think of a man whose past choices hurt his family. He wasn't there for them when they needed him. Now he's in his final days. But the shame of that past keeps him from receiving, from accepting the love and the forgiveness of his family toward him. And because he can't see a way that it's right for him to now, not deserving it, accept their love and their forgiveness, neither can he see a way or understand within his mind how he could receive God's love or God's forgiveness. His perspective is, I've made my bed, now I'll lie in it. It feels tragically heroic that that I made my own choices, I'll accept the consequences of them. But it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be. Verse 19 changes everything. They cried out to the Lord in the midst of their trouble. And he delivered them from their distress. How did he do it? Verse 20, he sent his word and healed them. God's word brings life. The truth of who he is, the truth of what he has done for us in Christ. This changes everything. That God so loved you that he gave his own son that if you would believe on him, Not merely, yeah, Jesus lived, Jesus died. I believe Jesus existed. I believe, yeah, there's there's a Jesus in the Bible. I've got that. No, that he died. You know, there was a time when I stood before a church years ago as a teenager. I said, yes, I believe Jesus died for the sins of the world. I didn't believe it for me. I became a member, had my own offering envelopes. But I didn't believe it for me. That came a couple years later when I believed that the Jesus who died for the sin of the world died for my sin, for my guilt. In the midst of my distress, I called out to him and he heard me. And I will 
tell stories of my brokenness. I'll tell the stories of my trouble, not to revel, not to revel in them and not to compare. My life was harder than your life. You know how we like to play that game? No. But that on that ground is where God's redemption sprang up out of nowhere. And look what God has done. And I can't hardly believe it myself. I'm just along for the ride and trying to keep up. Look what God has done. That's what I want to sing about. That's what I want to give thanks for. Out of that foolish, godly pursuit of happiness that's exchanged by God for redemption's thanksgiving. You see what he says? What, what can I do? What can I bring for receiving God's forgiveness, for rebelling against him? And yet he, he forgives me. He makes me new. He lifts me up. He makes me his own son, an heir of God, a joint heir with Jesus. What could I do in response? Oh, God, I'll do whatever. He says, just do this. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love. Give thanks. Give thanks with a grateful heart that out of my brokenness he saved me. He redeemed me. He lifted me up from the miry clay and set my feet upon a solid, solid rock. And that rock is Jesus. Let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. That's what I'll do. There's one more group that's representative of some of us or perhaps maybe all of us at one time or another. Some went down to the sea in ships. You see, their foolish self-will is turned, turned into worship. There's self-confident ambitions that gain a greater security. The, the, some who went down to the sea in ships, these are those of self-confident ambitions. I've got this. Some of you, yeah, you need the Jesus thing. You know, that's kind of a crutch. So some people need that. But I'm, I'm okay. I'm good. I'm going to take life by the horn. I'm, the world is my apple, and I'm going to take a bite out of it. I have got this. Well, the way I understood it years ago, um, I didn't need a crutch. I was a basket case. Jesus found pieces of me all over the place. And it's, it's, it's much more than that. And, and uh, my, my, my self-confidence crumbled. But this, this, this last section is addressing that, that perhaps worldly busyness, that I've got places to go, stuff to do, things to accomplish. I've got a resume to build. Some went down to the sea in ships, to the doing business on the great waters. The, um, the metaphor here is the seafaring trade out there on the Mediterranean. They're thinking of the Phoenicians. They're thinking of the king of Tyre. And Solomon joined partnership with the king of Tyre, King Hiram. Other kings followed his example, and they got entangled. And, and uh, Jonah... Jonah was a prophet who knew clearly what God had told him to do, and Jonah went another direction. Jonah went down to the sea on a ship. Jonah went down to Joppa. You know, the scripture talks about going up to Jerusalem. You're going up to the temple. And when you go up to Jerusalem, you're going, you're returning. In one of the feasts, you're going up to Jerusalem to worship God. And in the Old Testament especially, in the Psalms and in the history, going down in the Old Testament, when you're going down somewhere instead of up somewhere, it's supposed to suggest, watch out. This might not turn out good. Some went down to the sea in ships. 
and they're going to invest. They're going to take their savings, and they're going to invest it in a cargo that when they take it across the water and sell it over there, it's bought on the cheap here, and it's sold at a high price over there, and we are going to make money. We are going to be rich. And you got a glimpse of that in the story of Jonah, where the master of the vessel and the crew, they're all invested, but they didn't know about this Jonah. And God, in the midst of that voyage, God sent a storm. It didn't just happen. It wasn't just by chance. God actually sent the storm. Sometimes God will send trouble. It might be to redirect us. It might be to get our attention. It might just be that that is the canvas on, what, uh, on where he's going to paint his wonderful redemptive story. We don't always know the why, but in this case, as we look back, we know that this was because of Jonah's rebellion against the Lord's will. And God sends, God sends a storm. And actually, you think, okay, this is how he's going to get Jonah's attention. Well, Jonah's the last one to wake up. Jonah's the last one to realize what's going on. The others are all into it first. And what are they doing? First of all, the cargo, their investment, their savings is all pitched overboard. And finally, they go to wake up Jonah, and Jonah tells them what it's really all about. And they pitch Jonah overboard. (laughs) Well, he tells them to, really. But those pagan seafarers, they end up in the story of Jonah. They are the first. They're like an image of what could happen in Nineveh as well. If only Jonah went, that they're the first ones to call upon the name. They cried out in the midst of their distress. Look at the description here. Now, this is written before the book of Jonah. But listen to the description of it here. They saw the deeds of the Lord when they went down to the sea in ships, his wonderful work in the deep. What does that look like? Just how wonderful, big, and great the sea is? No. Verse 25, he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to the heaven. They went down to the depths. They're going up, and they're going down. And yes, they got seasick. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men. They were at their wit's end. They had nothing left to do. Then, don't wait this long. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still. This was written before Jonah. This was written before the disciples are on a boat in the Sea of Galilee. And they are freaking out because this grand storm has come up. The waters whip in from the Jezreel Valley and they come past the cliffs of Arbel in this narrow channel and they come through one edge of the Sea of Galilee and it becomes like a toilet bowl. It, that water, that air rushing through this way swirls the whole thing around in a big massive storm and they can come out of nowhere. You never knew it was coming. And the disciples were in one of those in the night, and Jesus is peacefully sleeping. And they said, Lord, don't you care that we're about to drown? And Jesus stands up and he says these words Peace, be still. I love the song that says, Be still, my soul. The winds and waves still know the voice of him who ruled them while he was below. We can trust him in the midst of whatever storm it is, it is that we face. Whatever storm and however it was brought about, maybe God has sent it. Maybe it's just the, the, the situation and circumstances that we found ourselves somehow in the middle in. But to cry out to the Lord in the midst of a trouble and he delivered them. He made the storm be still. The waves of the sea were hushed. 
Then they were glad that the waters were quiet. He brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wonderful works to the children of men, the sons of Adam. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. Even those Gentile crewmen on that Phoenician boat that Jonah gets onto, they join the, the, the gathering of God's people, the assembly of the saved, and they cry out in rejoicing, look what God has done. Here we were in the midst of our gainly pursuit. Nothing really wrong with commerce in itself. In fact, had somebody in our family that used to say, yeah, that church stuff, you know, that's nice, but somebody needs also to give themselves to business, to make money, create jobs. Absolutely. The church needs to be all through our society, all through our workaday world. We need to be everywhere they are. Well, almost. But in the midst of that, we need to be able to sing God's song of redemption. You're going to go back to wherever life takes you on Monday, and somebody's going to say, how was your Thanksgiving? Don't let it be limited to merely how was good. We had these people over. We forgot about all the troubles and stuff. We didn't even turn the news on. We, we, we forgot for a moment about all the brokenness of life. And we were just grateful for the good things that we had gathered around us and the great feast that we had on the table. Don't let it be merely that. Say, so yeah, this Thanksgiving, I was reminded out of the deep troubles that God has intervened. That God has worked miracles in my life. God has shown himself in the midst of circumstances and I didn't know what to do. I was reminded of that and that has made my Thanksgiving weekend all the richer and deeper because of it. Because not, even, not only for the blessings of life and the good things that happen, but even in the midst of troubles, those sorrows can also sing. That's the place. That's the very ground on which God's redemption is known, shown, entered into. If you see yourself in this psalm, maybe in the past, maybe today, you would find yourself at the end of it in one of two places. Either you're in verse 33 and 34, or you're in verse 35 and following. Verse 33 and 34 says, God turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground. He dries up the springs. Why does he do that? A fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. That the whole creation shares in this curse that is on the sons of Adam. This is the result of sin. And God doesn't hide us from it. That would be a cruel trick to pretend as if sin was not bad, as if sin was not destructive, as if humanity was not in this horrendous plight that we need to be delivered from. What if God didn't show us that, that life was just good and comfortable until we were eternally separated from God? But no, God allows. God, will, in fact, will turn seeming fruitfulness into the desert to show it for what it really is, that we were made for him. And only he can satisfy. And when we see that, when we do what the psalm does four times over, when we cry out to the Lord in the midst of our distress, when we ask, God, would you intervene? Would you work your miraculous redemptive acts in my life? 
then we step into verse 35. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water, and there he lets the hungry dwell. They establish a city. They live in fields and vineyards of fruitful yield, water, home, blessing, secure. That's our experience now and into eternity in God's redemption. Let that be the thanksgiving that you share. This afternoon, Monday morning, let even in the midst of your sorrows, let those sorrows sing that others too would hear of the wonderful redemption that God has worked. That's an even deeper thanksgiving that we can lift up to God. Verse 43 closes. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. We're going to receive the offering in just a moment. The worship team's coming back up. The ushers are going to be here in just a minute. And this offering is fun. This is so cool because we've already met our budget for the month. Everything that's given today is going to be going as an end-of-year love gift to our missionaries. So I encourage you to participate in that offering, but not merely, not merely in giving money. Use that white communication card that came in your bulletin. Use that to, as the psalmist said, to lift a sacrifice of praise. Why not enter in, jot down, share with the rest of us something about what God has done in the midst of some trouble, some sorrow, some brokenness, some catastrophe, some, some just hurt in the midst of life, that it was a result of being broken people in a broken world, and yet God has worked redemptively. We've seen God's mercy in the midst of our trouble. Share something about that. I would love to rejoice with you. Let's pray. Father, receive our praise. Lord, we do, in our need, we cry out to you. Father, what you would desire most of anyone here who sees themselves as one of the sums of these four verses, these four stanzas, Lord, who sees themselves maybe wandering on their own, in active rebellion against you, perhaps just pursuing foolish sin without regard to you, or perhaps self-confident in their own ambitions. Lord, that in the midst of these things, they've been confronted this morning with their need for you and that only you can satisfy. Father, then, what would thrill you most is right now, right in this place, right where they sit, right where we are, to say, Father, in my trouble, it's come upon me from myself as well as from others. Lord, I desperately need your mercy. I need your forgiveness. I need Jesus as my Savior. And right here today, I believe in Jesus. Oh, Father, we want to rejoice with this one. We want to rejoice in our own stories of testimonies of your grace. We give freely of what you've given us. And Father, that also being this great salvation. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.